2 Samuel, chapter 11, starting with verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David said, forget the matter altogether, pardon my indiscretion. No, unfortunately, that's not how verse 4 proceeds. It goes like this. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. And help us to be present with you, God. Not just in church, but present with you. Rather than absent from you and and on some other mission, absent from your mission. Would you grant us the security in your arms and in your protective voice to remove the facades and masks and to be truly present with you? Amen. Amen. Well, welcome again to the Springs. If you're visiting, uh, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of this church And today we're in week two of our series, Rise and Fall. Uh, We are studying the first four kings of the nation of Israel. Uh, Going through 1st, 2nd Samuel, we'll proceed forward as we get to Solomon and Rehoboam next week. Uh, But today we're talking about the second king of Israel. And our hopes is that the timeless word of God that supersedes cultures and the rising and fall of cultures that we could learn from the rise and fall of these leaders that had at their hearing and at their grasp the very voice of the living God like you do. Our hope is that we could learn from them and not just be myopic, only thinking about our own culture like most cultures in history have done, but that we could be wise and learn things, and maybe not repeat all of the same mistakes. That's my hope for me, and that's my hope for you. That we could see truths that get us out of so much of the fuzziness of our paradigm for leadership. Today, we're talking about the second king of Israel, King David. And here's the big idea as we examine this telling moment in David's life. The big idea is this. If you're not fighting God's battles, Satan will drag you into his. Just come with it. 
if you're not busy fighting God's battles, then maybe you won't even know what other battles you're fighting, but it's not God's. It's Satan. Satan doesn't want you to do anything else but besides what God wants you to do. And if you're not fighting God's battles, then it's Satan's battles. Now, I've said that David was the second king of Israel, but he was the greatest king of Israel, and yet he had this grave moment that we can learn from. He was the greatest king. If you remember last week, the first king of Israel was Saul, and Saul hardened his heart against God, and he listened too much to the voice of his own insecurity and and trying to find his definition in other people, which we tend to do. He didn't listen to God's voice and be affirmed by who God made him to be, and he hardened himself against the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and became a bitter and dependent and insecure man And at a moment in time, Samuel, the prophet, comes to Saul and says, you've rejected the voice of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. It'll be ripped out of your hands, torn from you, and given to someone better than you. That better king that Samuel was telling Saul about was this king, David. But David, despite this moment, wasn't just better than Saul. He was the best king in the history of Israel, Israel until Jesus. In fact, it says that David was known as a man after God's own heart. David wrote most of the Psalms that are in the Bible. If you've ever read a Psalm, you can see truly, oh my gosh, this guy's truly connecting with God and helping me to do so. This is the same David that had this moment in the flesh which caused a grave situation. And the story of how Satan dragged David and David gave in. And instead of being present with God and going and being on mission with God, he was fighting a different battle of his flesh and losing. And I would love to tell you that it just stopped there. But it gets worse. It continues to spiral down. David gets another man's wife pregnant Then he calls back Uriah from the battlefield, sends to bring him back. You'd think this is the dude's opportunity. Like, hey, get on my face, start weeping before this man, repent, say, I'm so sorry I slept with your wife. The two men could be just weeping in each other's arms, but that's not what he does. Instead, he starts shooting the breeze. Hey, how's things going, dude? How's things been? Just... Keeping things general instead of getting specific, right? Putting that facade on. I know, I know you never do that when you have something specific to talk about, but you just kind of talk about general things. Is that just me? Well, that was David. He's, he's like, hey, how's the war going, dude? Uh, it's going well. Things are going well. Are we winning? Yeah, all right. Cool, cool, yeah. And then he says, why don't you go home? Why don't you go stay? You've, you've worked so hard, you're right. Why don't you go home and, you know, go home and sleep in your house? I'm sure you'd want to do that. Well, he sends him away. He finds out the next day that Uriah slept at the doorpost. He says, David brings Uriah back the next day and says, How, why have you not come and gone down to your house? Uriah says in verse 11, the ark and Israel, speaking of a very sacred uh, possession of the Israelites, the ark of God, the presence, the ark of Is- and Israel and Judah Dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, his commander, military commander, and the servants of my lord the king are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house 
to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, King David, I will not do such a thing. So again, here's, here's another chance for David to just stop and say, ah, okay, let me just tell you what happened. But he didn't. He decides instead to throw a big feast to try to get Uriah drunk. He gets him drunk in hopes that, okay, this drunk dude will surely go and, and feed his flesh and just go back. And he doesn't. He doesn't go into his home at all. The next day, David decided, okay, well, I'm just going to have him killed. He has him killed by, by a strategic maneuver that he ordered in a battle. And then it says that he took Uriah's wife to be his own wife. The very last verse of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. One of the big understatements of the Bible. Displeased the Lord. This spiral downward and all these acts that David committed is something I want to examine. But what I want to spend most of my time examining before I even mention again the things that David did in this spiral downward, I want to spend most of my time talking about what David was not doing before he committed the very first sin. Because if you're not fighting God's battles, if you're not busy with the things of the Lord, present with him, if you're not fighting his battles, Satan will drag you into his. And that dragging is a spiral that gets worse and worse and worse. I want to rewind and go to the very first part of the passage that we read and show you several things that were going on that showed that David was not present with the Lord in fighting his battles and things that we can learn from a verse and a half before David ever committed these crimes. And I want to help you, give you a little hint. The crimes that he committed started with when he saw this woman, okay? So if you're in here, you're a guy, and you're prone to paranoia like I know some men are, I want to just help you to see that this isn't a message about how you can walk around paranoid thinking that the next beautiful woman you see is going to be your demise and you just have nothing to do about it. You don't have to fear the yoga pants. You don't have to fear anything. You can be present with the Lord. You can have your guard up. You can be wise. You can know your weakness and know that in your weakness you can be strong in Him. But the presumption that led to this in the first verse and a half or so is what's so grievous and what we can learn from even a godly man falling. So, verse 1 here. It starts and it finishes like this. In the spring of the year, when kings go out, King David remained. When kings go out, he remained. He wasn't busy playing offense, in other words. And he was left isolated to try his best to play defense. So often in the church, if you grew up like me, you can obsess with the things that we're not supposed to do and play defense against, right? And so little and seldomly do we talk about the things that are supposed to occupy our time, the adventures that Jesus has prepared for us when he purifies a people for himself. 
So often, the Christian faith can be reduced wrongly by you and me to a list of things that we shouldn't do, right? It's the thou shalt not. What about the thou shalts? What about this is what I've freed you to do? We focus so much on, on not doing the things that God has said not to do, but we forget that your life isn't about not doing those things. If we busy ourselves with going and doing the things that God has told us to do, there just isn't a whole lot of space in our soul, in our eyes, in our schedules for doing the things that God said not to do. Let me put it another way. The sins of omission always will set you up for the sins of commission. I'm going to break that down. It's what we omit from doing. The things that we don't do that God says, you need to be doing this. You need to be occupying yourself with this. This will thrill you more than sin. This is a greater adrenaline rush than all the other things outside of my presence. Occupy yourself with this battle. And instead, we're resting in someone other than the Lord something lesser, and we wonder why we're picked off. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing the things God says not to do. What if we rewind and say, at what point did I stop going with him? At what point did I omit that? The sins of omission always will set you up for the sins of commission. The sins of commission are the things you commit. You, the devil, your flesh, it's all in agreement. There's unity about all the wrong things because there wasn't a unity with God with all the right things. We're not busy doing the things of the Lord and we find ourselves isolated and left alone to join the devil in his work. There is a time for resting. There's a time for playing. But listen, there's a time for fighting There is a time for aggressive men to rise up with godly, sanctified, loud aggression. And God is calling us to fight the battles that he's fighting. Not fighting other battles and not fighting the most common, unfortunate battle, which is no fight at all. He's called us to fight. And when we're not present with him and what he's doing, We find ourselves doing other things. We need to know the seasons and and be present with God and he'll allow us to find those rhythms of when is it time to rest in him and when is it time to fight. We don't have to know that. We just have to be present with God. My wife and I, my beautiful wife sitting up front here, we have a, a daughter that we are helping to with her schoolwork as she grows. And she has this, we have this quote, because my, my daughter is wired so much like me. Uh, if ADD would have been a thing when I was young, I would have had all the drugs, right? She's so much like me, and we have to help her to see that it's time to work now. It's time to, we have this thing that we teach her. It's work while you work, play while you play. That is the way to be happy all day. I don't know who made it up, but I want to kiss that person. Wish someone would have told me when I was younger. If we're present with the Lord and we're working with him, we'll be resting in him. We won't be dragged into other things. The very first verse has the seeds of the demise, but then it goes on. He wasn't present with the Lord, and it happened. I love how in in my version, and ESV, it says just, it happened. And I want to stop there for a second. 
if you don't happen upon life, then life's happenings will happen upon you. And you'll be left to thinking that you're a victim and you're not. You need to happen upon life. So you're not left to just, the story is, it happened. Wasn't that, wasn't it Forrest Gump? I forgot. Didn't he coin the phrase, it happens? It happens. No? Something else? Some of us are old enough to know who Forrest Gump is. Anyway, moving forward. Maybe it happens. But you don't have to let it happen time and time again. You can be occupied with the things of the Lord. There's so many important points in my life that I've made huge mistakes and I've felt left to, to you know, tempted to think, you know, it just happened. You know, I, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and it wasn't my fault and, and I didn't do anything wrong. And, and I, you know, I catalog all the ways that I can list that it wasn't my fault and I didn't do anything wrong. And I get loud about it. And the voice of the Lord is always saying, well, maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but you also didn't do anything right. You weren't in the right place. Occupy yourself with the battles of the Lord. He leads you. And you can be present with him. It happened, the verse goes on, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Stop there. I'm pretty sure that couches about 2,900 years ago were the same basic things that they are now. David wasn't present in the battle of God, and he was resting in something other than God. Beware if you're resting in something other than the will of God. Beware if you're trying to find your restfulness outside of the grace of God. The first is, it's not that there's anything wrong with trying to find rest. The irony is, is that that is a good thing. And if you try to find your rest in something other than the will of God, within the grace of God, you will become way more restless than when you tried to seek refuge in the wrong thing. That's the story of David. If he was really finding rest like he thought he was looking for, he wouldn't have had to get up from that couch. He was restless. He went looking for other things. Before there was ever anything that he committed, any crime that he committed, before he saw, it was the restless state that caused him to go looking. He was sinning before he was seeing He was restless and he was looking. There is a battle raging in our culture today. And if we're resting in other arguments, other things, and not present with the Lord, fighting his battles, we'll we'll find ourselves on, on the wrong couch at the wrong time. There is a battle being waged today for the identity of a generation. Questions of who really am I? And they have all sorts of rabbit trails in different directions. But deep at the core is a question, who am I? 
And it's a battle being waged that the Lord is stepping into. And I want you to know, he's winning this battle. And his church is victorious. There is an open door for a prophetic power like never before to step in and say, this is who you are because this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done for you and this is where he's taking you if you'll take his hand. And God is sending prophetic power into people that are fighting that battle. But unfortunately, there are way too many people resting on a different couch. They're they're still in some moralistic debate or a political issue, left-wing, right-wing. They're not fighting the battle of God's prophetic power and speaking into a generation what God is speaking. They're, They're not fighting God's battles. I find myself on that couch all too often. And God continues to speak and define. So David gets up. He's, he's restless. He's, he's looking for some other form of rest. He's not finding God's battle. And he was walking on the roof of the king's palace. I'm going to stop there. We're not even at the, not even at the end of verse 2. And already, this is the last thing I see before David does anything wrong, technically. The roof of the king's palace was an exalted place. Uh, There's been some archaeological digs that show that it was probably about 50 feet above the wash houses, above the living quarters of of other residents of the city. And he had an exalted view. The reason he had that place was that God had given him that position. The position that he took for granted because he took God for granted. And when you take for granted, you take advantage. He took for granted the God that had given them that position, and he wound up taking advantage of that position to feed his flesh instead of serve these people that God has put in him that position. He feeds his flesh. He goes looking. I don't know what he's looking for, but I know that we tend to look too. We, we, maybe you don't have a, a king's palace 50 feet over the terraces, but all too often we go looking with our thumbs, do we not? Instead of fighting the battles God's fighting and, and being present with him, we're, we're, we're out kind of restless and doing other things. Using the position or the, the, the electronics that God's given us for something other than the purpose. And we find ourselves in David's position. I want to tell you, beloved, If you find yourselves taking advantage of what God gives you, it's an opportunity to stop. Surrender it again to God. That's not what David did here. Before he ever saw, he was doing all these things, taking advantage, taking uh, taking God for granted. Before David saw in verse 2, before he inquired of this woman in verse 3, before he took her in verse 4, before he lay with her in verse 5, before he, he enticed her husband and had him killed, before he committed any of those crimes, he was taking God for granted. David knew the Ten Commandments. He knew that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's six and seven in the Big Ten. But he didn't see those things because he was taking for granted number one. Thou shalt have no other God except me. He was surrendered to the God of self, the God of leisure, and and not bowing down to his master. If you're not fighting God's battles, Satan will drag you into his. 
I can tell you, I am very, very encouraged that the story doesn't end there. If you don't hear this and you just leave with a, well, maybe David made some mistakes that I can learn from, I'm telling you, you're missing the better part of this. So stay with me. Because after chapter 11 is chapter 12. David thought that he had kept all this wrapped up in secret and Joab better not tell anybody, right? But God knew. And God mercifully showed everything that David did to a a godly man named Nathan. Nathan is an amazing man. We all need a Nathan in our life. Someone that loves us, but loves God a lot more. God continues to speak prophetically and show signs to people. And Nathan was shown everything that David did, and he goes to confront David in a form of an allegory. But the thing is about this allegory, I think Nathan brings it to David as if it were a real story that happened. And so he goes to King David and he says, King David, so so there's this really rich guy and he has like like so many cattle and so many goats and so many sheep. He's got everything. And then there's this other guy. He's got one little ewe lamb and he loves it like his own daughter. So here's what happened, King David. The rich guy had a friend in from out of town. And instead of taking one of his own livestock to entertain his friend, he took the ewe lamb from this poor man, slaughtered it so that that he and his buddies could have a big rack of lamb party. And David, it says, interrupts Nathan. And David's anger was greatly kindled, it says verse 5 of chapter 12, kindled against the man and he said to him, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it were too little, I would have given you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, you might say, Pastor Peter, how did that get better in chapter 12? We'll get on to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He softened his heart amidst a very direct confrontation. Anyone ever had one of those? And he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Who's your Nathan? Who's the person God's put in your life that maybe you don't like sometimes, but you need to love. Because they'll tell you the word of the Lord. And they know you enough to be very specific. Who's your Nathan? Uh, and more importantly, are you responding like David here? In fact, I want to unfold what what David says more. There's actually a psalm that he wrote right after this moment. In fact, it says up top, 
a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So check this out. Verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's a lot about God. Clean me. Wash me. Isn't it amazing that he says, God, you're justified in your judgment, but wash me? How much of a great mystery is it that the same God that judges our sin is also the same one who alone can purify and wash us of our sin? Don't ever get used to that. That is a timeless mystery. You cannot be pure, you can only be purified. You cannot be clean. You can only be cleansed by the pure one, by the clean one. In fact, think about this whole cleansing thing. I'm going to go back to our original verse just for a second to point something out. It says that Bathsheba had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Uh, Now, I tried to research this for a little bit to see, like, was this like her, her monthly uncleanness, which seems like it is because she conceived right after this? Or was this a, a ritual uncleanness because of the, the encounter with David? And I realized that it doesn't matter which one it is because the unclean person in this story was David. And the beauty and the hope of saying that is that David knew it and David confessed it and David cried out for mercy to God. One of David's great, 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 like 11 times great grandsons is the one who would answer that prayer, clean me. He cried out to God in faith who would become man. He was known as the son of David. He was also known as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which was his first introduction by his cousin John. Jesus is the perfect one who alone can cleanse me when I'm caught. He's the one who says in John 15 to his disciples, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me. Some versions say, rest in me. And I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Isn't this a beautiful thing? God comes to to people who are caught in sin, like you and me and David, and he says, I could judge you, but I'm going to forgive you, and I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to allow you to rest. 
not just try to rest, but to rest in me to the degree that even on your couch in my presence, you'll just be bearing fruit, living a victorious, successful life, and the only person that could get credit for it is me, and you'll have joy forever and ever and ever. The one who judges our sin cleanses us from it because he chose to become our judgment. Jesus was the only perfect, clean one who ever lived, and he chose to die on a Roman cross to be our substitution. Isaiah says that by his blood, we are healed. He even says we're cleansed by it. First John says, confess your sin to the Lord. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is in the category of all? Well, murder, adultery, lying, gossip, uh, lust. Any, everything's in the category of all because he's that big. Would you pray with me?